Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. Welcome to today's DBSA Real Recovery Podcast on making amends and asking forgiveness. This is the cover story for the winter 2009 issue of BP Magazine. And joining us today are the author, Michelle Roberts, and Skip Treister, who shared part of his story in the article. Michelle is a freelance writer based in Portland, Oregon, and she specializes in mental health and family issues. She's a recipient of a 2004-2005 Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism. Skip Treister was interviewed by Michelle for this issue of BP Magazine. He's a former advertising executive and lives in Mesa, Arizona with his wife, Zenda. Thanks to both you guys for joining us today. Thank you. Yes, it's great to be here talking with you both. Thank you. I just wanted to start, um, if I could, Michelle, with a question for you about um, the theme of making amends and forgiveness and how it came up as a topic to explore. Well, it, it was a topic that I pitched to the magazine. Um, in all of my years of covering mental health reporting, this particular subject came up again and again, but um, I'd seen very little coverage on it, but it was just, it was very important to the people who were experiencing it. Often um, with mental health issues come some behaviors that people later regret, um, whether or not they can help it or not. And one of the difficult things um, was how to go about asking for forgiveness and making amends when you've hurt somebody, even when that hurt might have been um, part of the illness that you were experiencing. And so I just wanted, I pitched the story idea to the magazine and wanted to kind of take it on head on. I think it's such a relevant topic on so many levels. Um, And... Could you explain just for our listeners, um, just briefly, um, an overview of the article? Well, yes. Basically, the article um, profiled several people who um, who live with bipolar disorder, and you know, as as your, many of your listeners know, that's a long process from um, from first having the symptoms to ultimately being diagnosed. And in between that time, a lot of stuff can happen. A lot of life um, turmoil can occur. And that impacts the people in your life, your family, your loved ones. And so what the piece was about was I just interviewed several people who had basically been through that process and then asked them how when they were at a point of wellness or or a point of stability, how they went back to the people that they may have hurt in their life and and tried to make amends and what that did for them and what it did to the, for the people that they were trying to make amends with. Okay, and and when I, one of those people that that you profiled was um, was you, Skip. Yeah. Um, you were one of the stars in the in the story, so to speak. Um, and you were 45, is that correct, when you were diagnosed? I had just turned 46. Okay, okay. In 1995. So I okay. spent a long time suffering through this illness, not knowing what was wrong with me, and went uh, through three marriages and was on my fourth. And uh, with seven kids, you can imagine the impact that 
my illness had on a lot of people, um, and, and I, I didn't realize what was going on until I was diagnosed. No, and that was, um, I know you had said in the article that it's been 20, 20 years since, um, since you'd seen your children um, when you had been diagnosed originally. Um, when well, it's, you, it's been about 20 years now, 22 years, I think. It has been about eight years, actually. I, I, I got some of my numbers twisted around when I was interviewed for the article. Okay. But, uh, in, in looking back at that, it, I think it had been about eight years since I had seen my three sons. Uh, I had seen my two daughters um, within a few years before my diagnosis. My kids are spread out all over, and I've got two stepdaughters who uh, I had seen ongoing because they were living with us. So um, it gets kind of complicated. But, uh, yeah, I, I had three sons that I still have not seen for over 20 years now. Wow. And for the one, um, for your children that you um, that you did, where you were able to reconnect with and have been able to reconnect with, was there... Um, a particular moment or situation when you started to feel yourself moving toward reaching out to them after so much time um, where you sort of felt like I've really got to to get in touch and, and try to set things right? Yes, um, certainly with my sons um, from my first marriage who are now grown men, they're, they'll turn uh, 39, 40, and 41 this year. I, I was 18 when the first was born and the third was born shortly after my 21st birthday, which, again, I can attribute to my bipolar disorder. But um, uh, it, it had been a long period of time since I saw them, and even during uh, the last few years that I was seeing them, it, it was a very, on a very limited basis. So always in the back of my mind, I wanted to get back in touch with them, reconcile with them, and I, I was sure I would. It just didn't seem like things were going well in my life and I was on one side of the country and they were on the other and I thought I'll get around to this uh, with uh, my two daughters uh, they had lived with my fourth wife and I for a while and then went back to live with my third wife <laughs> and uh, so I had seen them certainly more uh, than my son's and yet it had been a few years, and I had put them through a lot. At one time, I was a single parent, and my two daughters were living with me, so you can imagine how hectic that was. Uh, but my first impulse when I was diagnosed was to call those two daughters who were um, still in their teens at that time and to say, um, listen, um, I know what was wrong with me. I... I I was mentally ill, and, and I've got a, an explanation, an excuse for all the crazy things I was doing. But I did that within a few days of coming home from the hospital. And I can only vaguely remember, but I called my daughters right away as if this was going to make everything right. I was still in a manic state. I was on Haldol, and um, I, I hadn't had time to sort through all of the impact of what was going on or to do any self-examination or understand the illness or really accept my uh, bipolar diagnosis. And so uh, I was in no condition at that time to make amends, and it didn't really go very far for me. And, and I think it just maybe scared them all the more that uh, 
you know, it was just me being weird again. And uh, it, it took some time after that um, for me to begin to make contact with those daughters, and and we went for several years without being in touch. But they would they would be in touch with my sister who lived closer, or with my father, and so there was some some contact with the family. And uh, I I think it was uh, about the time around 2004 that. My dad died. I had heart surgery the same day, and three weeks later I was back in the hospital with stomach surgery, and the doctor said, you're a very sick man, and you might not wake up from this surgery, uh, that I really stopped and thought about my life. And when I did wake up, I realized I'd been given a second chance on life, and it was time to get serious about uh, where I'd been and where I was going from there. And I determined that I was going to work hard to get things together and that I would get in touch with all of my kids eventually and, and make peace with them. And I started with my daughters and because I, I had been in contact with them more recently. Sure. And um, it was a difficult process. My My older daughter, who's now 28, had been through a lot of trauma herself that I wasn't aware of, and and as a result of my not being there, she struggled with college and relationships, and her mom, I think, had remarried four or five times, and uh, she just went through an awful lot that I didn't appreciate, and finally she was coming to me for help, and she she had some expenses and uh, with school, and she was getting speeding tickets and things, and I was trying to help her out, and... I, I think I lectured her about the speeding or something, and and suddenly she unloaded on me, and she let me know all those deep-rooted feelings that she'd had for the longest time and things that I didn't know. And that was a good thing because it opened my eyes, and I said, oh, wow, you know, I really did have quite an impact on her more than I realized. And that was the beginning of a long dialogue for the two of us, and we've visited since. she's She lives in Florida. I live here. But I've been to see her. She's been to see me. We stay in touch with email. And uh, we've developed a very strong, close relationship, and, and uh, there's a lot of love between us. It took a lot of work to get there. Her younger sister, who's uh, who will turn 25 this year, um, didn't know me as well. She was younger. We hadn't bonded as much. And it's been a slower process for us to um, reestablish a relationship. We, we do email. I'm anxious to visit with her soon. She had a, a baby a couple of years ago that I haven't met yet. And uh, she's she's struggling with some things. She's an unwed mother, and she has, uh, I think, a social anxiety disorder that she's still trying to, to come to grips with. So there's there's been some um, problems there, but we're making progress, and, and we do email, and um, there's a growing love between us, and, and uh, I feel like we are making amends. And, and part of that process is for me to regain her trust and, and show her that I am stable and uh, that uh, uh, I'm making an effort to do better in my life. Something that I learned from doing the story was that 
With mental illness in particular, it's very difficult for family members and loved ones to really fully understand at any given time what the person who's suffering from bipolar or, or whatever um, mental illness we're talking about, um, what they can help and what they can't help. Therefore, it's, it becomes a real challenge for the person who may need to forgive to know at what point are they is that forgiveness um, deserved and at what point um, are they just being harmed. And that was something that came up in the reporting of the story for so many family members was that they just simply didn't know what the person could help or what they couldn't help. And those boundaries are always changing when mental illness is involved. Do you agree with that, Skip? Oh, absolutely. My, <laughs> my sons are, are very bitter about a lot of the things that I put them through as kids. And, 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 so, and, and sometimes... They I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, and sometimes I'm finding that, or I found in the reporting of the story, that... Um, that it just—it's that also sometimes the person who suffers from bipolar disorder doesn't always even know or recall exactly what they can help, <laughs> what they couldn't help in in the, in the moment. Yes. So that that becomes one of the particularly unique challenges um, in in asking for and choosing to um, give forgiveness in these cases, and that came up again and again. And but what what doesn't change is that the basic core of forgiveness is that it it really does need to be earned. And Skip was talking about that a little bit. Um, it doesn't. At some point, it stops mattering what the person could help and what they couldn't because the hurt is just still there. So it, it requires the person who has um, bipolar disorder to basically understand that and not use the illness as an excuse, per se. And I know that Skip and I talked a lot about this. Um, so forgiveness, like I said, does need to be earned, and it takes it takes a lot of time sometimes, and it really becomes about the journey, and it's a long-term prospect. And um, one of the most difficult things in the people that I interviewed was actually just getting started. Sometimes a lot of people were reluctant to even ask for forgiveness because in their own hearts they didn't feel that they themselves really deserved it. Um, they felt so full of guilt for the years of turmoil that they caused their children or loved ones that they were afraid that they didn't even have the right to ask. But what um, my sources for the story said is that finally summoning up the courage to ask for forgiveness, even if it didn't come immediately, which it frankly didn't very often come immediately, meaning the forgiveness, um, just the act of asking for it was just a monumental moment in both their lives and the lives of the people they were asking for it from. And Skip, I know that the same thing was true for you. Yes. Yes, Jeff, I, I read, um, I was, I liked the, what you'd said about, you know, the key to the process is getting past your past and in order to get started, like Michelle is talking about, you have to make that step to forgive yourself first. I think that's a very important step and, and it was a struggle for me and it wasn't until I was on the path to recovery and had been in therapy for several years that I realized there is a point where you have to say, look, I've punished myself long enough, 
and um, there's a, a real peace of mind that comes with setting yourself free of that guilt and shame, but that's a difficult process. And um, part of it for me has, has been to uh, get back on a spiritual path and to realize that God truly shines his light on those who ask forgiveness. And in, in almost every major faith, God is a forgiving God who will redeem us from our mistakes. Uh, so I, I went through a lot of um, soul-searching there and asked forgiveness on that level. And, and C.S. Lewis said a wonderful thing. Um, he said, I, I think that if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's almost like setting ourselves up as a higher tribunal than him. And it just made a lot of sense. It's like, well, if God forgives me, um, shouldn't I be forgiving myself? Who am I wrong, God? I'm not. I'm not worthy of that. And um, so it's it's been a long process, but it's been a very freeing and liberating discovery to realize that I I am forgiven, and I have a right to be happy and to move forward with my life, and I have a responsibility to do that. And it's through that longer process of then uh, getting busy doing a better job of living my life that I could show my kids and other people in my life, friends and, and ex-wives and what have you, that and, and my current wife, that I am making an effort and I am doing better and you can trust me to be stable and balanced and, and to deal with these things differently. So it, it's certainly been a long process in that regard and I've asked each of my kids forgiveness my two sons that I'm still not in contact with uh, have heard me ask that but it's it's going to be a much longer process with them and, and uh, I know they don't understand what happened and what was the illness and I know it's not an excuse but I, I need to explain more to them and so I'm, I'm literally writing a book that tells my story and will explain to them, hopefully, um, what went on and, and what living with this illness is about. Uh, and and I, I trust that someday we'll, we'll make that connection and, and things will get better and we'll move on from there and hopefully they can forgive me for, for what I've done. But I, I've had to first forgive myself for all that guilt and shame of... of things I did, and, um, you know, and I don't want to get into too many examples, but I once pulled a switchblade on a state trooper in front of my three sons. That's not a very parental thing to do. I was in my 20s, and I was goofing off, and it was a guy I knew, but that's beside the point. I scared everyone to death around me, and, um, uh, you know, I, I called my kids' names. I would get drunk when we were out camping and disappear. I I was into cocaine as uh, self-medication. I offered it to one of my sons when he was 18. These are things that I'll never forget, and that I've had a long process of, of forgiving myself for having done. I am ashamed of those things. I know they haven't forgotten those things, and I know that, that uh, they've left some very deep scars. So it's going to take a long time to... To explain, and like I like I say, I, I can't imagine a better. I can't I can't imagine putting it into one letter or two letters or a phone call and explaining 
what was going on. So I've, I've resorted to working on a book that I want to get into their hands. That says, here's, here's the story. Here's really what went, went on. And uh, I, I just hope that they'll take time to read it and to uh, uh, appreciate what, what really goes on with mental illness. With my um, middle son, and I, I have, uh, since the article gotten his permission to talk about his situation, uh, I've tried to keep track of my kids, but the ones I haven't seen, uh, through the Internet and through other friends. And, and two of my sons are doing great, and both earning over 100000 a year, and, and they're visible on the Internet, and I can see what they're doing, kind of. And, and uh, in that way, I, I keep track of them. Uh, I went searching one day on the Internet last year for my other son who I hadn't been able to find out much about. And um, my older son had told my sister when she asked, don't ask. And I, that was kind of cryptic to me. So I went searching a little more. And to my utter shock and dismay, I found my son Jason on a uh, mugshot and uh, he had been arrested and was serving time in prison. He's, he's now served about three years of a nine-year sentence without parole for um, some vicious crimes that he says he didn't commit, and we haven't gone into detail about them, but he's determined to clear his name when he gets out. But meanwhile, he is in prison. And uh, that was just a total shock to me last year when I found that out, and and that prompted me to get in touch with him and I wrote to him on his 39th birthday and I said my god you know I can't can't believe this and where do I begin to say I'm sorry and uh, so I found that a I hate the term captive audience with with that son and uh, he did write back and uh, he was thrilled to hear from me and we've been corresponding for the past nine months or so now and have really developed a strong bond, and I'm I'm there for him and listening to what he's going through, and and he takes an interest in my situation, and um, in a way this is this has been a, a good experience for us. I, I just hope he can get through this uh, experience and come out unscathed. And 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 the other thing is, I still feel some personal guilt, and I've got to get past that 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 my not being there for him may have contributed to his situation that put him in jail in the first place. So um, it's it's different for each kid and each relationship. And when you have seven kids, it, it, a, a it's not across the board the same <laughs> process for each one. And it's a slow process. Um, you know, then there's my stepdaughters that have lived with me since they were 12 and 15 until they graduated high school. And they went through a whole different circumstance than the other kids that I had uh, kind of left behind. So it's it's been interesting and challenging. Well, Michelle, if I can if I can turn to you um, with your experience interviewing and and writing um, this story, especially especially you know being part of such intimate details like with Skip's family situation and getting to know you know these individuals as people. Did you feel like there was a, a certain impact that that the story, the process of the story, had on you, um, on a on a more personal level? Well, covering mental health, it's it's very rewarding, 
and I always um, feel impacted by my subjects. I just think um, people who've gone through this are incredibly brave and usually honest to a fault. (laughs) And um, what I really appreciated from my sources on this story was just their complete and utter willingness to open up some of their most painful moments, and that is how we interact personally with those we love the most. And what I I learned from them was um, that just asking for forgiveness, you know, once once you summon the courage to do so, was just the very beginning of a long-term, really from that moment on, lifelong process of earning trust back and all of the fears associated with that. So, so essentially, um, I, I just came to admire my subjects, and, and Skip included, um, for their willingness to open up about such, you know, close and painful moments in their life. One thing that I thought was very um, refreshing about what all of my subjects said was that they relished the opportunity to not just ask for forgiveness, but earn it through their actions. And I'm Skip's example and why I ultimately chose him as one of the primary examples in the story was that his um, his wife was um, diagnosed with an illness herself, and his caretaking of her, the day-to-day actions of caretaking for her, um, was a way that he was able to make amends to her personally. And, and my subjects had dozens of stories like that about how when they had the opportunity to be there for their loved ones who they might have hurt in the past, they relished that, that opportunity to, as a way of making amends. No, and I, I know that from the, um, from the clinical side of things that, um, so many experts say that that's, that's when it really starts, when you start to take those active steps. Um, and, and Skip, I know that you and I were talking about this before the call, and, um, and it, it sounds like it's still a very important, um, part of your, of your healing process now, um, helping out with your wife and, um, making plans and, um, looking out for her well-being. Sure. Very much so. And, um, you know, Dylan said you've got to got to serve somebody. Um, a lot of other people have said, like Albert Schweitzer, that you never know happiness until you learn to serve. And, and I know there's studies that show that when we serve other people, we do feel better emotionally and physically. So it it is rewarding. I, I didn't choose to and would never choose to be in this situation with my wife struggling with cancer, but it has brought us closer and it has taught me that I'm capable of much more than I thought I was, and it's helped me along my path to recovery. And it's gotten my focus off of myself and and into what can I do to help other people, and 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 that is very liberating, uh, and and has helped me grow more than maybe any of my therapy or medications. Uh, Gandhi said, "The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others." And caring for my wife got me started along that line. And and since I have uh, gotten involved in a cancer caregiver support group and have helped other individuals 
there. And, uh, in fact, this article was something I shared with them and was able to open up and tell this group about my mental illness and, and just uh, come out about that. And, and as a result, I was able to help someone who's struggling with serious depression and help him get some help. And uh, so you never know what's what's going to happen. I, I printed up some cards with hotlines and warm lines and other information that I can give out to people who ask for help. I've, I've been speaking with uh, In Our Own Voice, part of NAMI's uh, program. Mm -hmm. And uh, people would invariably come up to me after I speak and say, you know, I've got a, a brother that's struggling with bipolar. Or I've, I've, my, my husband has a problem with this. And I'm able to talk to them, and I'm able to give them information and, and encourage them to get help and to demonstrate to them that recovery is possible and you can live a better quality of life. So in turn, every time I speak or do something like that uh, with a group, it, it helps me. Um, and, and oddly enough, after this article, the, the uh, local NAMI chapter asked me to speak to their annual meeting uh, and give my in our own voice presentation, which I did, and and that was so well received, and that was a result of, of them seeing this article. In fact, they featured it on the front page of their uh, uh, newsletter back in uh, February, March, and uh, wrote about me being in Bipolar Magazine. And uh, so I spoke with them, and, and after that meeting, people came up and they said, I've got a son, you know, and, and so there's this network and it's growing of people that I'm connecting with and and helping them in whatever way I can. People who say, I wish my son could hear your story and see that, you know, there is hope and you can do better. And uh, in fact, I was then encouraged, and I think this is directly as a result of this article, to uh, run for the board of directors of the NAMI East Valley chapter, which I did, and I was elected to the board. So now I'm involved on that level helping, and I think more and more consumers need to be involved in uh, advocacy groups uh, and, and lend their experience and, and voice to those efforts. So it's it's opened a lot of doors and, and helped me on my my own path to recovery. No well, the, the ripple the ripple effect is um, really pretty amazing. You never really know how far. It's going to ripple out and the people that that you've touched through your story and Michelle through your article um, you know how many more people are they going to touch and and it just goes on and on um, right. so I want to thank you both for um, for talking about this and um, I want to ask before we close if there's anything um, that you'd like to to say in closing or to sum up I will certainly to anyone who's going through the process of making amends or, or feels the need to get in touch with ones that they feel they've hurt through their illness, uh, I would wholeheartedly encourage beginning that process and, and I can certainly say there is hope and, and, um, it, 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 it all starts with saying I'm sorry and then it's a long process of growth and discovery and, and, uh, Mending. I think making amends has to do with mending and, and rebuilding. But uh, uh, I certainly appreciate the the chance to uh, share my story, and, and I do hope it helps others. Oh, thank you, Skip. 
Thank you very much. And and I just like to reiterate basically what Skip said, and that's just that you know asking for forgiveness is the first step. And um, while mental health is is not an excuse for bad behavior, um, it education in learning about your loved one's um, illness really can go a long way in helping the person who may need to forgive to do so. And just that it takes time, and it's it's really about the journey and the relationship. It's not a simple, I'm sorry, that's okay. It's about what, everything else that comes after that. Yes. Well, well thank you both. Um, on, and on behalf of, of all of us here at DBSA, thank you for um, your time today and talking about this, this topic that um, really is kind of under underserved, I think. <laughs> Um, so I would like to wish you both well and um, and many more um, good ripple effects. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help.